In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's a movie I watch at least once a year, if not more often about a boy written by one of my favorites, Nick Hornby, is the rare case when the movie is better than the book. The movie's got everything you could want. Handsome Hugh Grant, a charming plot, and a great soundtrack. But that's not why I watch it. I watch it because it's one of the clearest, if imperfect, representations of the gospel I know, and it punches me in the gut every time I watch it. It opens with handsome but lonely Will in his hip London apartment watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? The quiz question is, who wrote the phrase, no man is an island? John Donne, John Milton, John F. Kennedy, or John Bon Jovi? Shallow Will responds, John Bon Jovi, too easy. Then he continues, and if I may say so, a complete load of bollocks. In my opinion, all men are islands. And what's more, now's the time to be one. This is an island age. A hundred years ago, you had to depend on other people. No one had TVs or CDs or home espresso makers. Actually, they didn't have anything cool, he says. Whereas now, you see, you can make yourself a little island paradise. Will maintains his island cool, living off the royalties from his father's one hit and awful Christmas song, Santa's Super Sleigh, which has dogged him his whole life. Will fills his time buying fancy gadgets and playing pool and dating beautiful women. The trouble is, the women always want more. A relationship. They want to join their island to his. And Will has gotten tired of breaking up with them. So he comes upon a clever scheme, which is dating single mothers, women too exhausted to ask anything more of him. To find these single moms, Will starts attending a support group, SPAT, Single Parents Alone Together. He pretends to be a single dad, making up a child of his own to fit in. Now, Will is not the only island in this movie. The other isolated, lost person is Marcus. Awkward, preteen with a terrible bowl haircut, being raised by one of these single moms, a kind of vegetarian hippie type who doesn't have the best grasp of what a young boy in the early 2000s in London needs to fit in to find friends. Also, she's seriously depressed, prone to crying jags. When Will takes one of the single moms from the support group out for a picnic in the park, he's surprised when she shows up not only with her daughter, but also Marcus in tow as a favor to his mother. Needless to say, awkward Marcus puts a crimp in Will's plans for a romantic day. And when they return Marcus home, they go into the house to find that his depressed mother has attempted suicide. Suddenly, Marcus and Will are connected. Marcus starts watching Will, and he soon realizes that Will has no child. So he shows up at Will's flat, and he rings his doorbell insistently and confronts him with the truth. 
and then he asks to come in. After initial resistance and many days and attempts by Marcus, who is a persistent doorbell ringer, Will finally lets him in. And a montage follows of them just hanging out together, watching quiz shows in the afternoon, and finally laughing together. In this moment, after watching Will, a character who, as one critic says, represents, well, us, we humans, curved in on himself, self-focused and self-protective, privileging his self-determination and individual freedom, but so clearly trapped in his own selfishness. We see that, at least for this time in the movie, Marcus has become a Jesus figure to Will. He doesn't want anything from Will, though Will is rich and cool. He confronts Will with the truth, but he doesn't condemn him. He shows up over and over and over again, ringing the doorbell until Will finally lets him in. All Marcus wants is to abide with him, hang out with him. In scripture, Jesus says, listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and let me in, I will come into you and eat with you. Well, Marcus stood at the door, ringing the bell, came in to watch quiz shows with the, let's face it, cool, but pretty depressed Will. And because Will experiences for the first time being loved, not because he's done anything lovable, not because he's rich or handsome or cool, but loved just because he exists, because it is in the nature of God to love, for God loves us before we do anything to deserve it, even when we're pretty sure we don't deserve it. And by loving us makes us worthy of love. Because of all that, Will is transformed by that transformational love. It's a cliche that hurt people hurt people. But it's also true. But its opposite is true as well. Loved people love people. Loved people love people. Slowly, Will moves from being a hurt, isolated, selfish person into someone who wants to love, wants to care for another as he has been loved and cared for. And of course, he falls in love with a beautiful single mother to whom he has lied about having a child. But because Will now wants true connection, he does something new for him. He tells the truth. It doesn't go well. Which is why, when Marcus, no longer a Jesus figure, but just a lost, awkward boy, comes to Will for help because his depressed mom is crying again, the way she did before she last tried to kill herself, well, Will doesn't quite take it in. He's too despondent over losing the woman for whom he would have given up island living. He is, after all, still a sinner. So Marcus, desperate to make his depressed mom happy, remembers that she told him at Christmas, after he opens the tambourine she gave him, remember I said she was kind of out of touch, he remembers that she told him that when he sang she was happy and he knows she loves Roberta Flax killing me softly. So he decides to sing that in the talent show at his middle school in London, where, let's just say, Roberta Flack isn't on the cool list of anyone, not even middle-aged teachers. 
but for love of his mother, Marcus willingly submits himself to the judgment of hundreds of middle school peers, a nightmare scenario if I've ever heard one. No longer a Jesus figure, just a boy frightened by the depression of his mother seeking a childlike solution. Will hears about this plan and he makes a beeline to the school auditorium for he knows what's going to happen, but it's too late. The auditorium is packed with kids and parents as on stage, a group of the coolest kids of the school are rapping and performing hip hop dance moves. A nervous Marcus stands in the wings with his little tambourine. Will arrives to convince him not to go on, but Marcus is determined. When he's called out on stage, Marcus begins singing in a sweet choir boy voice, acapella, a little wobbly. It doesn't take long for the boos and the taunts to start. We see his mom in the audience looking confused and then realizing just how out of step she's been, how little she's seen her son. And Marcus seems frozen, pinned, unable to do anything but to keep going, worsening his shame and humiliation with every note. And that's when we hear chords from an electric guitar as Will strides out on stage with a borrowed guitar and joins Marcus in singing. Remember, he's the son of a composer. He jazzes up, killing me softly, making it almost almost cool. People in the audience start to relax. The mums look happy. Even the meanest kids kind of lay back from their taunts. But when the song is over and Marcus looks happy, ready to leave the stage, and we think we're going to get the typical Hollywood ending, Will does something more, something that doesn't fit. He re-enters the song playing it louder and faster, singing his heart out passionately, eyes closed, making himself a figure of fun and humiliation, no longer an island. Someone throws an apple at him, hitting him in the head. People boo as he willingly takes on all the humiliation and judgment and shame that were earlier aimed at Marcus so that Marcus might escape unscathed. Now he is the Christ figure, taking on the pain meant for another, standing in the face of judgment. Because he has been loved with a selfless love, he has been transformed into one who can love. And because of that love, he now has let go of the fear of getting involved with others, of no longer being cool, separate, an island, protected, and alone. Obviously, this is a movie, it's not the gospel. But when you've got a complicated letter, like the one we have from John today, where love and abide get tossed around so much one's head begins to spin, it's helpful to have an example. For we hear that we are to love, that to love is to know God, and we suddenly have, let's admit it, one more item on our to-do list, one more way that we're meant to be good that requires us ginning up some feeling, acting nicely out of our own willpower. But that's not what John says. What he says is this. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We know love because God loves us as we are, no matter how much of a mess we are. Any love we offer to another is God working through us. And when that happens, we know God. When Will receives unconditional love, he can then show it to Marcus. In that last act of taking on Marcus's humiliation by becoming humiliation itself, Will is like Christ, reminding us of our true hope, which is that God acts for us, intervenes for us. We don't have to summon love and approval for ourselves. We don't have to shake our own sad little tambourines in hopes that someone will love us, someone will approve us, that we can fix the situation. No, God, love, mercy, grace all come just because we exist. God keeps pressing the doorbell over and over and over until we answer. God will hang out with us on the couch at our least lovable. God abides with us. And we don't have to do a thing. And from that, from God first loving us, fear is cast out. And we can love like God. Amen.